alone when it gets cool and football yesterday and everything it just feels like fall is finally here. She can't wait to come to the season. If you don't know that about me, fall is like my absolute favorite day. So uh, um, we're going to start this, uh, this morning with prayer. So as Jim will come forward, let's bow our heads and pray. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for the little things to enjoy like the weather and the seasons. We thank you that you are constantly good to us and that uh, you, you sent your son Jesus as we just sang. That his blood is what cleanses us from all unrighteousness. Lord, we thank you so much for that. I pray that we will live a life that is affected by that truth every day. Lord, we pray these things in your son Jesus' name. Amen. So, this morning, we only have a couple of announcements. Our biggest announcement that we have is to talk about the, uh, the event that is plastered up here for everyone to see, the Life of Missions. Hopefully you haven't missed that we're going to have our missions one-day conference coming up on the 20th. Um, there's been a lot of planning going into it. It's going to be awesome. We're going to have missionaries here. We're going to have, maybe have some food. I think we've had some men to talk about getting some recipes here from uh, the other countries. There's some good foreign food here. Uh, it's just going to be a great time to, to start our, uh, get our hearts focused on missions. Missions is so important. Um, we're going to be talking, uh, I'm preaching this morning, we'll be talking a little bit about that. So it's on my mind. So if I start rambling, I'm sorry. But, uh, but it, it's very important for us to take time and be here for that. Um, it, it's, it's a very well-planned event. We put a lot of work into it, not only just for that, but it's a very, very important thing for us to devote ourselves to missions as a church. Um, and then our other announcement that we have today is we're having a children's uh, church meeting with all the leaders. So if you work in children's church in any capacity, kindergarten through fifth grade, we're going to have a meeting the 27th after church. We're going to have some lunch. Uh, we'll be meeting just to plan, talk about uh, the needs of the group, so I'll be leaving that meeting. Um, so I'm looking forward to having everyone there. And if you could please take time out of your schedule to set that part very important. We're going to be setting our plans for the future of our children's church, um, planning out curriculum, all that kind of stuff. It's very important that everyone will be, well, will be there. I had all my stuff that Lindsay take, makes me take out of my pocket before I stand. And people in front of my Bible and my notes. And then it crushed all my notes and made my Bible real funny. So that's why that was a little awkward. We're going to be in Romans 1 this morning, if you'll turn your Bibles there. We'll be talking uh, mainly in verses uh, 18 through the rest of the chapter. Um, but today what we're going to be talking about, um, something that we have, this sermon is something that we have put in schedule with our missions conference being uh, next week. Uh, today we're going to be talking about what the world looks like if it is left to its own, and we, do, we no longer see the importance of missions. And we decide that uh, spreading of the gospel is no longer that important, um, not worth funding, not worth going after, and the world, if left to itself, will be okay. Um, obviously, we know that's false. We live in a completely fallen culture. see that every day as, as the Bible and its Christian themes are taken away from our public schools, from our lives. We see the farther and farther our culture degrades, um, and that's just how it goes. The world without God will continue to spiral and spiral until it eventually destroys itself. Thankfully, God doesn't let that happen. But we're going to be talking about that in Romans and mainly focusing on missions. John Piper had been quoted to say, missions exist because worship doesn't. I never really understood that quote. Like, okay, yeah, I guess we don't, we don't sing enough, and that means that we don't do missions. I never really got it. I was like, no, what are you talking about? As you, we study Romans 1, it's going to become very clear that Romans 1, and that's where he gets it. When God is not worshipped as he is supposed to be, that's why we need missions, because people refuse to see God as how he is, 
we need to send people to go tell them who he is. Missions exist because we do not worship God enough and people do not worship God. Therefore, we need missions. Statement makes sense once you study on Romans 1, and I never did, so this, this week I learned something new. I was happy to learn that. I was like, hey, John Piper does know what he's talking about. Romans 1 illustrates what the world looks like when people do not properly glorify God. Because this world desperately, we desperately need missions. We're going to see what the world looks like without it. Uh, a couple weeks ago when Brian McPhail Fawzi was here, I love saying McPhail Fawzi, it's just a fun last name. Um, when he was here, he, he asked some questions that I think he was like staring straight into my soul when he asked them. I know he wasn't, but he said, um, how many of you know who we support as missionaries? I'm like, I'm on staff and I don't know. Oh, I'm going to figure that out. And he asked other questions, like, how, what have you been doing to further the mission? How, how are you preaching the gospel to those who haven't heard it? And it was starting to click. Like, I don't really know our missions, our missionaries at this church. I don't think I've really invested a ton into missions this past couple weeks. I mean, it's all been new here, so that's part of it, but I still should have known. We have 14 missionaries that we are currently supporting. How many of you guys knew that? I didn't. I had to ask Julie if she came through for me. That was awesome. She handed me a paper with all the information on it, too, so I've been reading up on it. We have some awesome missionaries. It's so important for us to know them, support them, and be in communications with them. Give them your money. They need it all. And missions are so important. And yet, oftentimes, I think that in our church culture and in our culture around the world, missions is kind of not that important anymore. It's all about, you know, getting in a good church and what's good for you and you and you and you and you. And you. It's not about us. It's nothing about us in this life. It's all about God and glorifying His name. And how do we do that? We do that by preaching the gospel to those who haven't heard it. And our culture needs to change. We need a change in our men, our processes, and how we think and how we go about our life, and understanding that there is much going on outside of the Faith Linden Fenton area. We are not all, God isn't completely focusing His work on this area. Yes, He's working here greatly, but the work of God is so much greater than Fenton in Michigan, in the Midwest, in America. It's the entire world. We, we need to step back and take a look at our world as God sees it, which is an entirety. He sees it as a whole and sees there's missionaries going on over here and going on over here. And he cares and loves about every single one of them. But we oftentimes get focused on here and now. And this is what matters. And this is what's important. Yes, that's true. But there's a much bigger picture going on. And I think we need to start thinking bigger. I need to start thinking bigger. I'm a creature of habit. So I wake up every morning. Well, Lindsay wakes me up every morning because I don't set an alarm. If she wakes me up, I go, I eat my breakfast, watch a little TV, take a shower, go to work. I, I do, I get caught in this, in just this flow, and it becomes normative, and this area becomes normative, and I'm starting to learn things and know this area very well, so now this is my world. That's not very good, I and mean, my world should be the entire world. I should be thinking constantly about how we have missionaries in India, there's missionaries in Africa, there's people in Iran, in Iraq, a place where there's so much turmoil, and they're there preaching the gospel faithfully. At, at, at the risk of their own lives. And we don't pray for them. Our brothers and sisters are getting murdered. They're getting beheaded, and we don't even pray for them. And there's, there's some serious, I think we, maybe you guys do, and you know, good on you if you do. I'm very proud of you, and keep it up. But my mind doesn't often think that way. And so we need to focus on missions, because our world is going to continue and continue to go down and down into, into depravity and farther and farther if we don't recognize how important missions is and get on it. 
we're going to look at the beginning of Romans 1, starting in verse 18. We're going to be tying it back into uh, verse 16 and 17 as well, because context is very important. Uh, verse 16, which is one of my life verses, says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, and it is written, The righteous shall live by faith. And in verse 18, continues to say, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Now, I was thinking, how does this tie in? And uh, I like to read um, Tom Schreiner's commentary on Romans. It's very good. It's very technical. Uh, but he brings out a lot of truth. And he, he brings the connection this way. It says, uh, God's saving righteousness is being revealed in the gospel by faith. That's in verse 17. Uh, his implicit proposition is we really need the, uh, we really need God's saving righteousness. It's being revealed to us. We desperately need it. Because God's wrath is being revealed against all people who have sinned against His glory. His wrath and His justice are being revealed. And we, we, need, uh, we need a Savior from that. Because we see, okay, the gospel has been made known to us, and there are people who reject it, and the wrath of God is being revealed against it. And so we're going to look into we're going to look into that um, how that looks in our text. Um, this text, as I've been studying it, um, it, it talks about a lot of the exchanges. That's a key word in uh, verses 18 to the rest of the chapter. Talk about exchanging. So the title of my sermon is the Not So Great Exchange. One of you guys know what the Great Exchange is in history. Taking place in the 18th century, where a lot of people around the world were coming together. They were trading a lot of goods. It was a great time. Commerce was at an all-time high. They were also trading diseases, so it wasn't very good. Um, so, we call it the not-so-great exchange. But this, here we're going to be talking about today, this is the not-so-great exchange. There's not a lot of good things going on that we're exchanging in this chapter. We're going to start, start reading. Again, I'll pick up in uh, verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. Talking again about how God's gospel, His righteousness, is being revealed by the, through the gospel that Paul is not ashamed of. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and things that have been made. So they are without excuse. Here's, um, for although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God nor give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their minds. And in their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. Here's our first exchange. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal men, birds, and animals, and creeping things. We're going to step back for a second because there's some serious, there's some good text, good scripture in terms of apologetics. I don't know how many of you guys have studied apologetics and learning how to defend your faith. One of my favorite things um, about this text and other texts in Romans God has not hidden himself from people. Uh, Christopher Hitchens is a, yeah, he's dead now, but he's, an atheist, he's a very outspoken atheist, loved to debate people. Um, he claimed that when he died, and if there is heaven and if there is God, these are all his friends, he doesn't believe they exist. He said, when I see God, if there is one, I'm going to ask, who are you and where have you been? And after I heard that, I said, I don't think you're going to be talking much. I think you're going to be on your face before God saying, I knew all along, didn't I? I rejected you, didn't I? 
God has revealed himself, and it says in verse 20, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. I don't know if you can look at the stars and think, man, Big Bangs are really cool. You look at the stars and say, man, God put that together? That is sweet. You look at nature and we see the just intrinsic nature of our bodies. And of like, they study birds. Like, if you take one principle out of a bird, it can no longer be a bird. There's all this, like, intrinsic design that is put in. How can you say that didn't happen to be a god there? His attributes are being shown. You look at the universe. There are 36 fundamental constants in the universe. When even one of them was off by the smallest amount of a fraction, there couldn't be life on the planet. But you're telling me a random explosion did that. I'm sorry, I don't believe you. It's very clear that God has made himself known. So God is without excuse. When these people say, you don't know me, how could I have known you, God? He said, I have revealed myself to you since the beginning of what I have created. You are without excuse before my wrath. You have, you can know who I am. I have revealed myself to you. So we've put, God is no longer, you know, I, when I read this, I'm like, God, your wrath is being put on all these people. But they, do they know? Yes, they know. So God, God's clear on this one. They, he has no, no one can blame him for saying, you have punished us unjustly. God has been known. His rules have been known. There's a reason that if you ask someone who doesn't believe in God and say, hey, can I murder your family and it's okay? They'll say no. Why? Because we know intrinsically there are morals. Life is valuable. God has revealed himself to us all. People are without excuse when it comes to acknowledging God. I think it's very important that we know that and we start with a big God when we're talking about how important missions are. Because it's not about us, it's about our big God. So he has done so much for us and for the world. So he's revealed himself fully. It's a great way to start how Paul's talking about now. Okay, so God's not at fault here. It's not God's fault the world. And you know, a lot of people will blame God to say, if he's good, why is he letting all this bad happen? It's not his fault. You good? Do I need to move away from something? Or Okay. It's not on him. We, we screwed it up. And so, Paul's making that very clear. And I wanted to make that clear as well. So, verse 21 says, Although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their minds and foolish, and their hearts were darkened. So, they knew God, and they refused to honor Him. That's not good. God doesn't... God is very jealous for the glory of His own name, and rightfully so. He's God. They became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. Exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images. I think, um, I love this text about how when men think they're wise, they actually turn out to kind of be fools. There's this guy I worked with, and uh, he claimed to be a Christian. Well, he didn't claim to be a Christian because he doesn't like to be labeled. He's very close to the so he doesn't want to be labeled. Well, Christian's a pretty good label. Little Christ, I like that. Um, he didn't want to be labeled as a Christian. He said, oh, Jesus is my Savior. I was like, okay. So we got talking, and I mean, he doesn't live like it, so that's why I was really curious as to why he said that he was a Christian. And I was talking about, you know, he, he thinks that human life, and all this isn't really that worth it, and, you know, human lives aren't that valuable. And I'm like, well, one, probably shouldn't say that if you're a Christian. But, uh, but he thinks it is foolish that God glorifies himself through human beings. Like, yeah, he's like, God could just use such greater things. Like, yeah, but isn't it the best that he uses us instead of not greater things? He uses us weak, broken, fallen people and uses us for greatness? Because in his mind, that doesn't make any sense because he, he's wise in the eyes of men. In the eyes of God, he's foolishness. That's what this is. These people who think, you know, they, we've got it figured out. We have become 
Hitchens know God. We have been free. That's Christopher Hitchens is all about freedom from the tyranny of religion. He thinks he has become wise in knowing that there is no God and not acknowledging it. He's become a fool because God has revealed himself. So humanity is not in a good state so far, and we haven't even talked about an exchange that we've done. And the exchanges are pretty bad, too. But we're not looking so good. We're refusing to acknowledge that God is real. Not a good start. We continue and exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. This is our first exchange. They exchanged the glory for the immortal God for idols. Doesn't make a lot of sense, does it? The glory of the immortal God. I kept reading that over and over again. Like, how can you say, I want this little thing over the glory of the immortal God? I think of Mount Sinai with fire coming down from heaven and shaking the earth. Everyone was terrified. If you touched the mountain, you were dead. Like, that power and glory of the immortal God. And we want little trinkets in comparison. Like, how, how can you do that? And then I realized, I do that every day. We all do that every day. We want money. We want power. We want our name to be recognized. We want a lot, whatever. Fill in the blank of what you want more than God and what is your idol. Now, one thing I think we need to start off with talking about this, this was uh, something that um, Schreiner debated a lot, and it has been debated, is who is the they that we're talking about in all of this? Uh, I believe the they is all of humanity. I think that uh, can be well proved. Um, if we look back into the last couple of verses, we see the all-encompassing gospel of God is the power of salvation to the Jew and to the Gentile. That's everyone. The next verse talks about how God's righteousness is revealed through the gospel to everyone. It talks about the wrath of God is being revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. I think when you say all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, we're all ungodly and unrighteous, so I think that's all-encompassing. I haven't met a man who I can't say there is some unrighteousness in you. So all unrighteousness of man is pretty all-encompassing. This is all of us that he's talking about here. So Paul's making a broad, sweeping statement that all mankind has rejected God and chosen to go for lesser things. Now, I like illustrations. They help me to understand a concept. So I, I wanted to look at some Old Testament examples of what it looks like when you say, I want an idol more than God, and pit them against each other. You know, see, like, here's God versus an idol. So if you turn in your Bibles to 1 Samuel 5, we're going to uh, look at an example of this. First Samuel is before Second Samuel. I've got visions. First Samuel five, we see that the Philistines are thinking it's a good idea to put the Ark of the Covenant in the temple with their god Dagon. Dagon, not a good god. They have some pretty twisted rituals with them. The Ark of the Covenant is placed within the temple, and to the shock and dismay of those who worship Dagon. When they go back in the next morning, Dagon is falling before the Ark of the Covenant, and his hands and his head have fallen off. If you don't, if you can't read into that, you're not. You, you can't perceive it. His hands and his head of the statue are broken before the Ark of the Covenant. It doesn't look. And they realize we got to get this thing out of here. <laughs> this isn't good. And what happens next is rats and boils and all this nasty stuff that's going on. It is not good to fit and say, God, look, you are at the feet of our God, Dagon, Ark of the Covenant. Dagon is greater than you. What happens? Dagon has fallen before God. Just the Ark of the Covenant, the representation of God, 
he's fallen before it with no head and no hands. You go into 1 Kings 18. That's another example. This one I think is really, I, I, I thoroughly enjoy this story. Um, with Elijah on top of Mount Carmel. And the prophets of Baal wish to compete with Yahweh. Not good. They say, we're going to compete here. We're going to say, okay, our God, we're going to pray out to him, and he's going to come down, and he's going to burn this up. You ready? And they start praying and dancing and cutting themselves and doing all this crazy stuff. And lo and behold, nothing happens. No surprise. Baal isn't real. So we see, I think one of the funny things, Elijah starts mocking them. Um, in verse 27, if you can, 1 Kings 18, verse 27, and at noon, Elijah mocked them and said, Cry aloud, for he is a god. Either he is musing, he's going to the bathroom, or he's on a journey. Perhaps he's sleeping and must be wakened. And Elijah gets it. Like, this is kind of funny. <laughs> I think it's funny. And they're crying aloud and they're cutting themselves according to the custom of swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. As midday passed, they raved on, time of the offering, and nothing happened. No one paid attention. Everyone just said, Okay, this isn't doing anything. And then we see Elijah says, all right, God's turn. Put some water on the burnt offering. You know what? Build a trench around it and fill that up with water too. And if we go to verse 36, we'll see what God does. At the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O God, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant. And I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me. And these people that may know that may, these people may know you, O Lord, God, and that you have turned their hearts back. And the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And here's the best response for that. And when the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. It's not looking good for idols. Why do we choose them? God is so much greater. We have chosen to exchange His immortal glory for the little things in life that are so fleeting and fading. And if you don't believe me, read Ecclesiastes. Solomon literally could do whatever he wanted. He had the most money, the most wisdom. He had all the women that he wanted. He could throw all the parties that he wanted. He had everything this life could offer. And at the end, he said, I feel like I'm running after the wind and trying to catch it. This is vanity. So why do we do this? This is this is the state of humanity without God. They exchange the glory for Him for lesser things. If we don't preach the gospel to people, they're going to continue to do this and be even more lost. There's a serious need for missions. And if we want to look again, I like looking at how God reveals Himself in Job. We want to look again at how Almighty God is. Job 38. Job is uh, saying, God, why are you doing this? Why are you doing this to me? God says, Job, let's take a second and talk about who I am. God's the only one who can do that, and it's cool. He says, where were you when the world was created, Job? That's the only question that God needed to ask for Job to realize I shouldn't have said anything. Where were you when I created the world? Where were you when this was done? Can you do this? No, you can't. Why are you questioning me, Job? I am God. Can you bring up the Leviathan out of the water like you're fishing? No. You can't do anything. I am Almighty God. And then we see how idols are revealed. Turn your Bibles to Isaiah 44. 
and we need missions because the world's pretty messed up. We're, we're not doing it. We're not doing it right. The folly of idolatry is the chapter or the text heading that I have. It says, All who fashion idols are nothing, and the things they delight do not profit. Their witnesses neither see nor know that they may be put to shame. Who fashions a god or casts an idol that is profitable for nothing? Behold, all his companions shall be put to shame, and the craftsmen are only human. Let them all assemble, let them stand forth. They shall be terrified, they shall be put to shame together. The ironsmith takes a cutting tool and works it over the coals. He fashions it and hammers it and works with a strong arm. He becomes hungry and his strength fails. He drinks no water and is faint. The carpenter stretches a line. He marks it out with pencil. He shapes it with planes and marks it with a compass. Shapes into the figure of a man and the beauty of man to dwell in the house. He cuts down the cedars or he chooses a cypress tree or oak and lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. He plants a cedar and the rain nourishes it. Then it becomes fuel for a man. He takes a part of it and warms himself. He kindles fire and bakes. He also makes a god and worships it. The same tree that he used to burn all of a sudden becomes a god. Idolatry is foolish. This is farther in the text. They know not, these are idols, nor do they discern, for he has shut their eyes. They cannot see. No one considers, nor is there any knowledge or discernment to say. All Basically, he's just saying, why does all of a sudden the fire that you the fuel that you use for your fire become a god? It isn't. How can you worship that? The same thing you use to build your house all of a sudden is a god? Stones are god? What? What are we, are we seeing the folly behind this? That's our world if we're not doing something about it. That's us before the gospel of Jesus. Like, we're not looking very good. This exchange doesn't make any sense. I love how C.S. Lewis states it. He says, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what it is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. I think he gets it. Idols don't make sense. But our world is going to continue to exchange the glory of an immortal God for something so little and insignificant that we're not willing to do something about it. Because we are called, Matthew 28, to go and make disciples of every nation. We've got to do something. We don't just sit here and talk about it and get frustrated. We've got to go do something about it. We'll talk about that later. Also, the good illustration about this is uh, how I looked at food before I met Lindsay. I was very satisfied to go to five restaurants and order the same five meals and never try anything again. Very happy to do so. Meat and potatoes kind of guy. I don't need much. And then when we started dating, she said, we need to go out to these other places. I said, well, I don't want to. I don't know if they have good food there. I was very happy, in Lindsay's words, to wallow, swallow, wallow in my own basic boring foods. When she knew the truth, there's a lot of good food out there that I've never tried before. She knew something that I refused to see. It's a silly illustration, but it's the same concept. We have something so much greater out there, but we exchange that greater for lesser. And we do it every day. You do it when you wake up and you decide, hey, I am going to value sports center more than my time with God. I am going to value even valuing people. People can very well become idols. It's a temptation I found in marriage that happens often. I really want to make Lindsay happy. And then I think Lindsay really wants to make me happy. But she's not ultimately going to fulfill me. And so I put her on too high of a pedestal. God's the only one that can fulfill me. We make idols even out of the good things. The best things, in Lindsay, in my opinion, 
But we make we can make idols out of anything. God gives us a lot of good gifts, and we ruin them. <clears throat> the next exchange. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped the created as opposed to the creator. This is very similar to the first, but there's some different language. Now, what is this truth that he says we have exchanged in the bottom line? The truth about God is what is revealed earlier in the, in the text. God is worthy of all of our praise. Is he not? Is he worthy? Amen? Are you going to amen? Amen. He is worthy, right? I hope so. You're here worshiping him for a reason. We know that. We believe that. God is worthy to be praised. He is worthy of all glory because of who he is. We're exchanging that truth for the lie that says this is better. Much like the first people, uh, Adam and Eve in the garden that said, I actually want to have this. Even though God has told me this is what's good for me, I'm seeking something else. That's the truth that we're exchanging, that God is worthy of all glory and all worship for eternity. And we're exchanging that for worshiping these little things that will fade away. Think about as I was reading into this and studying this, I was thinking just about like the vanity of, of life, and it gets a little depressing, but it's just good that we have a hope. But just funny how, you know, the, our culture, you have to have the next biggest, brightest, and best. And it, it just fades. Like, the iPhone, when it first came out, was like the greatest thing in the world. And now if you look back at the first iPhone, you're like, what is that doing? That was like six years ago. <laughs> and it's already considered worthless and garbage. Why do we devote ourselves to such things that are considered useless? I mean, even the iPhone 5 is considered obsolete, and they only have a 6. It's like, when the next thing comes out, the next is obsolete. The old is obsolete. We have to go and get the next greatest, the next greatest, the next greatest. What does it matter? It's all vanity. It's a pursuit that leads us to nothingness. Yeah. Exchanging the truth about God that He is worthy to be worshipped for a lie and deciding to worship the created as opposed to the Creator. <clears throat> like we previously addressed, we as people are so easily swayed by money, power, sex, attention, whatever it is that you value so dearly and you refuse to give up. We've decided that these things are so much greater than God. Either that or we think that God is lesser, and I pray it's not that. We've exchanged the truth for a lie. We show under that belief again. I, I challenge you to look at Solomon. He had it all and said, this is not worth it. Also, he compares it to trying to catch wind. And when I think about that, I think about how uh, my dad used to punish me for my folly as a youth. Uh, he, I, was, I was an idiot when I was younger. I'll just preface that with all of that. He made me do the vanity things to prove, like, hey, being stupid and being, being bad and being in sin is so dumb that don't do it anymore. So he would give me the, the tasks of vanity. And that was, uh, one day it was particularly windy. It was as those helicopter things are falling off the trees. And my dad said, all right, well, it's time for you to sweep the driveway. What do you mean, sweep the driveway? It's windy out there. These things are falling. What's the point? He goes, no, here's the hand broom. Go sweep the driveway. Like the hand brush they use in the bathroom floor? Go sweep our driveway. Big driveway. And I was like, are you kidding me? He's like, get out there right now. Like, yes, sir. <laughs> and I got out of there. But that's vanity. Every time I swept one, 30 came off the tree because we had two huge trees in our front yard right over the driveway. That's vanity. And we say, that's so stupid. Why would you get, why would, you know, but we do this every day. We laugh at it, but then we go do it tomorrow. 
I don't want to make us all feel really kind of junky about ourselves, but this text clearly illustrates we're not very good. And we, and we look at sin in the world and we're kind of okay with it. Those people, they're not pursuing God. Well, that's just because they don't know. It's fine. They're just going to keep doing it. He, he's a Muslim. He'll never come to know God. Are you kidding me? Do you know who God is? God changes the hearts of whoever he so chooses. We're simply the clay in the hands of the potter. If he decides that that person who is the most devout Shiite Muslim is going to become a Christian, that's right. Why do we look at our world and think it's okay? Oh, but we can't change them. They're too far in their disbelief. They'll never come. I think we have really underestimated how bad sin is and how bad our culture is. It's a vile offense against God. We need something to fix us. We desperately need something to fix us. We exchange the truth about God for a lie, and we worship those things that are not worthy of worship. The next exchange. We've exchanged what is natural for what is unnatural. In the text here it says, For this reason, God gave them up for dishonorable passions. Their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passions for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. I think this text, you know, people say maybe the Bible's not so relevant to, to culture as it used to be, right, as the old new culture, you know, whatever. I think this text perfectly describes what America is doing exactly right now. It's become normal now. You can't tell someone they can't get married or one year after that some of this is gender. That's judgmental as well. Man, I, you're right, it is judgmental. I'm not the one doing it. God's the one doing it. But we live in a world where now it's homosexual, homosexual marriage is brought to us as true and valid and good. If, if someone tells you that the Bible isn't relevant to our culture, I'd bring them to this text. This sounds a lot like our world. So they are giving up what is natural for what is unnatural. It is natural for men to desire women. That is straight up truth. God made it that way. That's how it goes. Our world decides that's no longer what's good and it's not right either. So I'm going to exchange what is normal and give it up for what is not normal and break the very nature of humans. We really we don't, we don't just mess up like little things in our lives. We go after the Satan and through us go after the very nature of what we are created to be. We are created naturally men to love women, women to love men, and Satan says, I'm going to make this real messed up and go after that and change the very thing. The people have had their very nature changed. That's how deep our depravity is. We've seen out, in this, we see an outpouring of, of a world that refuses God. It went from they're just refusing God and not worshiping Him to now, hey, this is what this looks like. They're worshiping idols, and they change what is very natural about them for something that is unnatural. That is the outpouring of our world. We see it in every great civilization that rises and falls. Rome, rise, morals, gone, fall. It happens when morals go, when what is good and what is godly leaves. That is when depravity happens and causes fall. It is simple fact. We need to be more aware of what our, fall, our fallenness in the culture and not be wooed into normalizing sin. Our culture says it's okay. We need to not be so approving and saying it's fine. Yeah, we'll, we'll, just, we'll just love them. Yes, please do love them, but 
we are so lost in wandering to hell, there is a second step. That means, yes, we need to love first. Always love first. That's what Jesus does. But love brings truth. My dad didn't punish me because he doesn't like me. My dad punished me and made me do stupid things because he loves me and he knows what's best. And so, he punished me. Made me go through hard times. I'm a, I'm a better man for it. They need to know. True love tells truth. Even if it's hurtful. Even if it is so... It causes friction between people. I mean, the gospel is... The gospel that we preach is definitely abrasive. It is calling people and saying, your whole lifestyle that you are choosing right now is wrong. That's abrasive, but it's true. We see throughout, like I said, we see throughout, throughout all of history, when morals and culture degrades away from worshiping God, the civilization itself fails. I don't think this is a coincidence. God is in charge of all things. Again, we see in this text, policies today, they refuse to acknowledge God. The world without people acknowledging God is such a foul place. We look in the rest of the chapter and we see what it is that these people do. 28, verse 28 says, And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to, to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. You see yourself in that yet? Gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil. Notice this one, kids. Disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, and ruthless. But they knew God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. They not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. That's a tough list to go through. That's our world if we don't preach the gospel. Now, granted, God doesn't need us. Something that we need to remember. If God wants to save all people, then He chooses to use us. I'm so thankful He chooses to use us. It's a life so much better when you pursue God and you don't fall into this world's desires and you see that God is so much greater than idols and we exchange back the idols and we give the glory, we take back in the glory of the immortal God. Life's good with Him. Life's not so good without Him. The very end of this chapter is what strike that's what should strike us deeply. It says, though they knew God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. People know. If you do this, there's punishment. People know. They not only do them, we do this. We give approval to those who do so. We can't look upon sin and not you see brothers and sisters struggling in sin, can you really let them go and say that you love them? There's an, an atheist who, he put a video on YouTube, and he says, uh, I don't know his name, he says, how much do you truly have to hate someone if you firmly believe you have something that's going to save them from eternal punishment and you don't tell them about it? That one hit me. Because... I think we do love people. We genuinely want to see them come to Christ. I think that's a, a desire for all of us. I hope it is. We don't do anything about those. We just, oh, I want to talk to them. They might think I'm weird for being a Christian, or they might not like me, or they might, they might, you know, bring an argument that I don't know how to refute, or something like that. It, we, we know that God is true. We know that God is real. And 
so do the people who say they don't. It's, it's, it's written clearly here that God has placed, God, God has revealed himself to all people. Our world is going to continue to be this exchange if we don't do something about it. Like I said, God can do something about it if he so desires without us. So we don't give any glory to ourselves or to missionaries that come in and they say, hey, we've had 3,000 converts. Yes, we say, hey, that's awesome. Way to be used by God. We don't say, hey, you are amazing. You are so great. You are so good. And God saved those people. Yes, we give them applause. Yes, they're thankful they're doing the work of God because they're obeying. But we know that God is the one who's doing all the work. We see uh, in the rest of this text, as I have read, we choose to not. We know what is right, but we go and we practice it anyway. And we approve of those who are doing it with us. We stink. I don't want to leave you guys without hope, though. Because there is greatest hope ever found our human race that is so broken and rejected and just messed up. Though we have exchanged the truth of God for a lie, though we say, no, God, what is natural? I don't want that anymore. You know what? God, God doesn't say, all right, I am sick of you guys for doing this. I'm done. That's what we do to people. God doesn't do that. Thank the Lord he doesn't because we would all be gone without him. We see it. Let's go to Ephesians 2. Ephesians 2, verse 1. And you were dead in trespassing in your sins in which you once walked, following in the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Ouch. That's us. The greatest hope ever is coming up, though. My two favorite words, but God... So you guys are foul. This is that pausing. You guys stink. But get ready for what I'm about to say. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So at the coming of ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works. Praise God. He didn't leave us where we were. Because that's who we were. We were the broken. We were the fallen. We had exchanged the truth of God for a lie. That was us. But God sent his son and changed us. And if we are willing to talk about how great of a difference God has made in our lives to other people, we don't get it yet. We have been given so much. Missions should be natural. And now, missions isn't necessarily, I'm not asking all of you to move to Africa in a hut. If you want to do that, if God's calling you, please go. Follow the will of God. Missions happens in your workplace. You're on mission when you go to work. You work in a secular environment, you're on mission. You're a missionary. Our president of Northland, not Daniel Patsman before him, always used to say, you know, everyone here who want to go in the ministry, you want to go in the ministry, all those people there in the ministry, every single one of us are in the ministry. We're all called to go and make disciples of every nation. So we see our world really needs missions. 
is it how? But they don't know. What are they going to do? God has revealed them, yes. God has revealed to them. But we we've also been called to do something. Turn back. We're going to go back to Romans. Go to Romans 10. Verses 14 and 15. How then will they call on him who they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? How are they to hear about someone preaching? How are they to preach unless someone, unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. We have a cause. We have a purpose. We've been given everything. We have so much to give. I want our church to be focused on missions. I want us to remember throughout this week and see in our world, not just walk through and see the depravity and I just don't want to be a part of that. I'm going to separate myself from it. We've been called, we've been sent to help and fix it, to preach the gospel, not preach morals, not just make them better people, not just to get them in the door and come to church every week. That'd be great. But what they most desperately need is to be saved by the gospel. They need Jesus Christ to be preached to them over and over and over again until they get it, until they acknowledge, hey, I have done, I have exchanged a lot of the truth for lies. I have refused to see God as He truly is, but now I want to glorify Him as He rightfully deserves. Our world needs to start doing that. And we're the ones who are called to go help them do so. So I hope, I hope, this week you'll be more in tune with the world in need of missions as a whole. You start to get a bigger picture of what's out there. See the depravity of the world broken over it and start to see, hey, missions is so important. I need to get involved. And our church has some great ways of doing so. Jack's going to come up after I pray and talk about it. I hope I have motivated you to see the importance of missions. I'm not the one. God's, God's using me to speak to you guys through, you, through me. Missions is so important to Him. The glorifying of His own name is what He's concerned about the most. But we need to do so through preaching the gospel to other people who don't know Him. Father in Heaven, we thank You that You did not leave us where we were. That You did not see us in our depraved state and leave us. Because You decided to not only provide a way for us to be saved, but then You sent us Your Holy Spirit to be with us. Not only that, but then You caused me to live with You in in heaven. Lord, you have given us so many good gifts. I pray that we will not hold this in, but we will let our light shine brightly in this dark world. You have called us to missions, Lord, whether it is out on the field, whether it's in our cubicle, in our office, in our workplace, in our house. Lord, whether it's coming to church and giving to missions, supporting missionaries, calling them, praying for them. Lord, I pray that you will help us to be more focused on the greater plan of salvation in this world. We love you and we pray this in your son Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, Wes, for a powerful message. You know, after Peter preached his powerful message in Acts chapter 2, the crowd said, What shall we do? What shall we do? I hope to answer that question for our church right now. What shall we do? Think that this church, since we've begun the church, we've always used 
a process called Faith, Promise, Missions, Giving. This is how we get involved in supporting missionaries, especially those on the foreign field. I want to explain that to you so you understand what we mean when we say that. And this is what shows you. This is a way that you can get involved in missions through Faith Baptist Church. When we talk about faith, promise, missions, giving, think of it this way. Four terms I'll share with you. The first one is missions. Missions as in the Great Commission. Missions as the Lord said, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to every creature. The point being, all men are lost and they need a Savior. The point being, you know, whether they know it or admit it or not. And we know a Savior. His name is Jesus. And we are commanded to go and tell them about this Savior that we know. So the missions in Faith Promise Missions Giving is primarily about enabling some to take the good news to places we cannot go. Now, that's not all there is to missions, and that's not all of our job, but I am talking about our Faith Promise Missions program, how we can be involved, and how can we enable the others to go where we cannot go. And God has given that task of missions to us, the church, the people. So there's missions and then there's a promise. Um, You know, the word promise in faith promise missions is about God's promise. God's promises, not about your promise or my promise. You see, the idea of promise is not new to you. You kind of depend on promises all the time. In fact, when I got married, I made a promise. And when I got alone, I made a promise. But the best promise is the one God makes. And God gives us some promises in His Word that you can take to the bank. God tells us in His Word that the wages of sin is death. God tells us in his word that the gift of God is eternal life. He tells us also and promises, I will never leave you nor forsake you. He promises, if you call upon me, I will answer you and give you great and mighty things you do not know. The promise is only as good as the one who makes it. And God always keeps his promise. So what I'm sharing with you is something about God's promises and God's desire for missions. Which brings me to the next word, faith. Faith is uh, trust or confidence in relying upon or believing in something or someone. Faith really is hearing the word, believing adjusting or changing your life 
according to that word. So you hear something, you believe it, and you make some changes. You do that every day, in a way. You exercise faith. In fact, uh, you exercise faith when you go to the restaurant. And you say, I'm going to sit out and I'm going to order this and you're going to bring it to me and it's going to be clean and good. And I'm going to suppose that you have a clean kitchen back there. And you exercise a lot of faith every time. You, or, or when you go for a ride on an airplane, you know, you exercise faith constantly. Um, I, I, I'm thinking about the pharmacist that I went to the other day. Well, I went to the doctor first. Well, well, well. even before that, I got a couple of spider bites on my arm. And then they got infected down, down under. So I went to the doctor, and they were growing big red spots. And the doctor said that any cream or anything I put on them won't solve the problem. It's inside. He said, we got to get you on an antibiotic. So he ordered one. So I went to the pharmacist. Look at all the faith I'm exercising already. And the pharmacist gives me some pills, and I hope they got the right stuff in them. And I go home, and he tells me how to take them. And finally, it clears up. So it's gone. I heard the message. I heard the word. I believed the word. is all about. And faith in God and His Word is the best kind of faith. You can never go wrong when you believe in God. So, we've talked about missions. We've talked about promise. We've talked about faith. The final word in that phrase, faith, promise, missions, giving, is giving. Talking about giving to missions through Faith Baptist Church. This isn't the sum total of the Christian life. It's a way that we invite you to be involved in our missions program to help support those 14 missionaries. What we do here is give to missions. Now, uh, Faith Promise Missions giving is not the time. What it is, is listening and believing some of God's promises about giving. The Bible has a lot of them that say that where God says, if, if, if you give and then I'll give. God says, prove me and see if that doesn't work. God says things like honor the Lord with your possessions and with the first fruits of all your increase. So your barns will be filled with plenty, and your vats will overflow with new wine. He said, hey, do it my way. Believe me. Honor me. Bring me the tithe. I will honor you. One of my favorites, it happens to be Luke 6.38. It's a verse not just about money, but it is about giving to missions also. Luke 6.38 says, Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, 
pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. So God is saying, I want you to give to missions. But when you give, now this is really hard to believe, but it's God's word. It will never cost you. When you give to God with the right heart and the right attitude, God has a way of giving back to you. And he may not give you stuff in your bank account. He may, may not give you money back. He may make your money go further. But I'll guarantee you, if you determine to give a certain amount of, to missions, and you give that amount for a year, you look at your account at the end of the year, I'll guarantee you that you are no worse off than when you started and that you'll probably be better off because God blesses those who give and he has his own way of doing it. Next week, as part of our mission's emphasis, we are going to receive what we call a faith promise missions card. In that car, on that card, we ask you to make a commitment to give so much a week or a month or even just for the year to missions. And we ask you to do that on a, a regular basis beyond your time. And when we have you do that, we take that number, and that's how we determine our missions budget. In fact, if no money, if, if nobody gives any money and no one gives anything, the way our budget is set up, we will just have to not send any money to our missionaries. Because if we don't have it, we can't send it. But you are the ones that determine if we have it to send. So we ask you to make a commitment on the card, and that will help us determine the budget. We will have those available next week. And this is what we do. Uh, we determine to get involved in missions. We believe that it is our responsibility to take the gospel to the world. And we believe God's promises that he will bless and honor when we give to him. And therefore, we've determined to give a certain amount to him. And as you give to him, through the year, you can watch him keep his word. There are those who started giving years ago uh, $5 a week to missions. One of the things I've learned is if a few people, or if a lot of people give a little, it makes a lot. So we start giving, you know, $5. But I have watched people start giving 5 and then 10 and then 25 and then 75 and then $100 a week to missions beyond their tithe. And it has never cost them. 
because God has a way of repaying you. God has blessed them. I, I just got to tell you this story, and I, some of you have heard it, but a lot of you haven't. Let me tell you how God blesses you. You know, uh, one time I got a call from the guy that I get suits from at Penny's. He said, hey, Jack, I know that you don't need a new suit right now, and you don't need a new blue suit, but I got one here you might like. He said, it's, it's an Italian cut. Folks, I've never had an Italian cut suit. He said, it regularly sells for about five or $600. Folks, I've never had a five or $600 suit. You know, most of mine are $150 suits that I got for $75. So he says, he says it's a five or $600 suit. He said, I can sell it to you for $29.95. I said, I'll be right there. So I get there. It happened to be the month of April. And in the month of April, J.C. Penny had sent me a birthday present, a $25 gift card. So I get there, and I say to my friend, hey, Don, and I said, can I use this card? He said, sure. Now, I got that suit for four ninety five. It is the nicest suit I ever had. I still have it. But the first thing I thought was, this is how God takes care of his people. I want to encourage you to give to missions because it will not cost you. It will bless you. And it will bless the missionary. So next week when you come to church, be prepared to fill out one of those cards. Even talk about it between now and then. And folks, if you're not going to be here next week, uh, just call the office and let us know this is what I want to do. Now usually we do this in March. This time we're doing it in September because we're changing I'm going to say our mission's here to accomplish that. So I wanted to share that with you because Wes says people need the Lord. And I say this is what you can do to help. Let's just stand with me and I'll pray. Father, we thank you for the privilege of sharing the gospel. People need the Lord. And Lord, we have you, and we have your message, and we have your word. Help us be faithful in getting it out however we can. And we pray for next week as we have our our special missions day, uh, all the things going on, that we also pray, Father, that uh, the offering will be a good offering so that, uh, Lord, we can commit to our missionaries once again. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's go out this week in a strength, uh, full with the armor of God, and uh, let's preach the gospel that Wes uh, showed us today from the Word. We'll, we'll see you soon. We have one announcement, one final announcement. All of our parents and teens that are here for our meeting after church, uh, it is 12.22. Let's shoot for 12.45 p.m. Uh, we have some food for lunch. We have a meeting, so uh, if you just... Hang out for, for just a couple more minutes to uh, get everything together, and then come in. We'll have uh, lunch and then quickly.
Thank you. Thanks, guys.